0: I'm Crystal Keating, and this is the Johnny and Friends Ministry Podcast. Each week, we're bringing you real conversations about disability and finding hope through hardship, and sharing practical ways that you can include people living with disability in your church and community. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, or find us at johnnyandfriends.org podcast. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Dr. John Swinton, author of Finding Jesus in the Storm The Spiritual Lives of Christians with Mental Health Challenges. Dr. Swinton writes and speaks regularly about faith, mental health, and all the ways in which our culture can exclude those whose lives don't fit the standard format. He shares some new ways of thinking about differences in disability and explains how to better welcome, embrace, and understand others as pathways to loving our neighbors well. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Swinton. It's so wonderful to have you here today.
1: It's lovely to be here. Thank you for the invitation.
0: Absolutely. Well, Dr. Swinton, you worked for many years as a mental health nurse, a hospital chaplain, and community mental health chaplain. So I'm curious to know... How have your experiences in those roles shaped your perspective on people living with mental illness and difficult diagnoses?
1: Yeah, well, I think it obviously it shaped me profoundly in the sense that when I was coming through my early years as a nurse and as a chaplain, these experiences that I had really just shaped and formed the way you think about people. Because the bottom line for anything, like this is we're really just talking about People, So we talk about mental health ministries and we talk about disabilities studies, but at the end of the day, we're talking about human beings and what it means to live together and all of our diversity. So I guess that experience taught me how to understand human diversity differently. You know, when you're with people who are going through really difficult times with their mental health and really experiencing the world in ways that are completely different from my experience... The temptation is just to say, oh, well, this is just, you know, all part of an illness process. It's, it's meaningless. All we have to do is get rid of these symptoms and, and people will be better. But the more I spent with people, and this is still the same, the more I saw that these experiences that people were going through, whether it's, you know, maybe depression or depression or the highest in of bipolar disorder or hearing voices, they're really meaningful Uh, And yes, they can be extremely disturbing and yes, we need mental health professionals to to help us when we are are suffering in that that way. But at the same time, they're part of people's stories, they're part of people's lives. And so they they can't just be taken away as if uh, taking them away fixes everything because actually, you know, these experiences become part of who you are. And so I learned a lot about about what that meant in terms of people's stories in that way. Um, But I also learned a lot about Church communities, because when I worked as a, a community mental health nurse, my job was to work with people coming out of long-term mental health care and into the community, what we in the United Kingdom at that called, time called community care. Of course, community care is great if there's such a thing as community, but of course it's not. For somebody, particularly people who are, are, are seen and thinking differently, it's difficult to find a space, and it's no different within Church communities, and the thing that always saddened me was how excluding church communities could be, both in terms of their lack of welcome, but also sometimes in terms of the theology and the way that they try to explain people's experiences. So, my job then was to help people to find a spiritual home, which means accompanying people into these situations and helping churches to see things differently. So I learned these kinds of skills of of looking differently and being differently and understanding that complicated dynamic within churches, which can be really welcoming, but at the same time can be really exclusive, not necessarily deliberately, but it just happens sometimes. So all of these experiences that I had inside hospitals and communities and churches, I suppose it makes me the person that I am, but also enables me to do theology in the way that I do. Mm.
0: Well, and I think a lot of churches, even though well-meaning, have struggled to find a category for some mental illness. And right. so I think that's why your role as integrating people from being in long-term care back into a community takes a lot of education, which is why I'm so glad we're having this conversation. And you know one yeah. of the things that you've talked about is the difference between mental illness and mental health. and you know you've really struck a chord with me on how much language matters and how it shapes how we think and perceive others. So can you talk a little bit about the difference between even talking about and using words like mental illness versus mental health? I'm sure that has an impact on the community and the church.
1: It does. Most churches are very word-oriented, so we shape and form everything by the words that we use, so we're used to doing that. A way to think about it is, if you think about the Genesis account of creation, one really fascinating thing is the way that uh, God gives Adam responsibility to name things properly. Mm -hmm. So all the animals come up to him and and he gives them a name and as soon as he gives them that name, that's what they become. So the bunny rabbit becomes a, a bunny rabbit or the giraffe becomes a giraffe or whatever it is. Once that name is given, that's what it is. And to me, that indicates two things. One, that a primal responsibility of human beings is to name things properly, to give things the right names in creation, which is why something like stigma is so, so awful, because it goes against that whole creation dynamic and that whole responsibility we have to name things properly. Mm-hmm. But secondly, obviously, it, it tells us the power of language, because the language that you use about something determines to you what you think it is that you're talking about. And what you think you're talking about will determine how you respond to the, the thing that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And the temptation for all of us as Christians is to kind of be a little bit lazy, not really think things through, and just go to the first reason that comes to mind. So maybe we'll say this is caused by sinfulness or this is caused by the demonic or whatever it is. Because that's the only lexicon, That's that's the only language that we have. It's our own language in that sense. So you automatically go there, not really thinking about the implications. But as soon as you do that, you begin to shape and form your experiences and encounters with people with mental health challenges in a very particular way. As soon as you give people that name, that's how you respond to them. And if you can imagine receiving that name and watching how people respond to it, you can see how difficult that kind of language can be for people that are going through difficult times. So I think language is profoundly important. So the first step towards creating a mentally healthy community is learning to speak well major language.
0: That is so key. You said it well. A a lot of the churches, maybe that some of us come from, are word-focused, and we want to Mm -hmm. have a biblical worldview and use biblical language. And so what you're saying is that we need to expand some of those definitions to not categorize people in strictly terms of, you know, sinfulness and mental illness, but brokenness. I think that's the theme. Our world was broken by sin. And because of that, we live with the effects of a broken body and yeah. broken minds, and it, it, it impacts us. And so th- I think that starts to cultivate compassion. And when we have yeah. compassion, that brings that sense of humanizing people who live with mental health challenges. And so you've talked about this very thing. Mental health challenges seem to have a way of actually dehumanizing a person because it's easy to focus on the diagnosis. That goes back to that language and their illness more so than the person who's living with these hardships. Maybe you can share a little bit more about why this happens and how we can move toward focusing on seeing people
1: as God sees them. Yeah, that's great. And I mean, the issue that you're really pushing into there is the issue of stigma. Because one of the strange things about mental health diagnosis, actually extremely important for mental health professionals to be able to gather together a group of experiences and then use their healing gifts to help a person through a difficulty in a crisis. So diagnosis themselves are, are good things, in the context of mental health professionals, when they kind of leak out into society and people like you and me begin to use the term like schizophrenic or depressive or whatever, everything changes there because the intention of the language there is not healing, it's to kind of name something in a very negative way. And that's what brings you to that space where stigma becomes fundamentally important because mental health diagnoses are are very often stigmatised in the way that other diagnoses are not. So for example, if you have influenza, People don't call you the flu. But right. if you have schizophrenia, people will say, oh, well, you're a schizophrenic. So it becomes part of who you are in a way that physical illness very often doesn't. But stigma, yes. So stigma comes originally from the Greek slave trade where slave master would buy a slave, put a mark or a brand on them, and they would be reduced to the size of that. So they'd no longer be a person. they no longer have a name. they no longer have a family or a place in, in community. They're just that mark. And that's the way that stigma works itself out. As soon as you find yourself using a language like John down the street as a schizophrenic, you're beginning to do exactly that. Because John down the street is a son, is a father, is a brother, is a friend, all of these things. So why would you choose that particular term, whatever schizophrenic might actually be? But that's what stigma does. It reduces you to one aspect of you and everything else gets forgotten about. And so that's why we have to be careful When we're working with diagnosis within the context of church communities as well, that we aren't driven by what we think the diagnosis means. Diagnosis is helpful. It may understand some things about hearing voices or depression or elation or whatever it is. So it's helpful to sensitize us to some things, but when that's all you see, that's when the problems begin.
0: When the challenges kind of take over the relationship of who they are. I, I just think of our friend Tara Graf who was on the podcast. She lives with schizophrenia. She's also a mom. She's a homeschooling mom. She's a wife. She's very active in her church, and she lives with what she would call the affliction of schizophrenia, but she's so much more than that. And her story really brought to light just how much she clings to the Lord and how her relationship with Christ is really central to her identity. And I think that's what it comes down to. Who does God say we are? Who are we in Christ? What has He said about us? As a church community, let's let those definitions define how we think of ourselves and others. And I think that can really shape our relationships. And, you know, I'm sure as a hospital chaplain— and maybe even a nurse, you probably heard so many stories. And you had to take the time actually to listen to people share and, and invite that. You've talked about the power of listening to someone's story. So when someone tells us their story, what are some ways to affirm their experience and show love? And what are some responses maybe that we should be aware of that might actually hurt more than help?
1: That's that's a great question. In terms of listening to people's stories, the first thing is, listen. One of the things that's quite interesting about contemporary society is that we're developing a society or a culture where absence is becoming the norm. It's a lot to do with social media. If you can imagine, looking into a restaurant and seeing four people sitting around the table, they're all on their mobile phones. They're present. But they're absent. Totally. So they're present physically, but they could be anywhere in the world. And culturally that's becoming a norm. We've spent so much time being absent that we've forgotten what we needs to be present. And when you're in the presence of somebody who's going through an, an unusual experience. The temptation is to withdraw. That's a natural thing because you, you get fearful, so therefore you, you withdraw or you, or you don't listen properly. And so if you have that difficulty with dealing with difference combined with a culture that always tells you you should be absent, then there's a problem. So I think for us as Christians, one of the things that we can do is uh, concentrate on being present. And to be present with somebody anyway, you've got to just think about it. You know, think about the way that you communicate. A lot of human communication is basically mind-reading. When I'm talking to you, I have to imagine what it is you're thinking. So if we were in the same room and I could see you, I'd be kind of trying to read you and trying to say, maybe she likes me, maybe she doesn't like me, maybe I should do this, maybe I shouldn't do that. So we're constantly mind-reading. If you're in the presence of somebody who's going through a difficult experience you don't understand, then your mind-reading skills become overwhelming because you're always thinking of the worst scenario there. Mm-hmm. And the temptation is that that's mirrored in your body. If say, you're, you're sitting with somebody who lives with schizophrenia and your mind-reading skills are developed by watching Hollywood movies, for example, and, and the idea of split personalities and all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. people will see that in your body. But if, to pick up on your point, just so, if you see the person before you as somebody who's made in God's image, and somebody who finds their identity not in their diagnosis, but in Christ, as Paul puts it, then that's a different dynamic. That enables you to be present in a way that you could be tempted not to be present. So the first thing to do is to recognise the person before you as who they are in Christ, not because of whatever they're going through. Uh, And when you get to that space, then everything else in principle moves positively on from that. It's a difficult space to inhabit sometimes, but you know, reading your mind and reading your, your, your body uh, enables you to see the person in front of you, ideally in the way that Jesus sees them.
0: When we think about the struggles many face, like I would say shame, you talked about isolation and misunderstanding. How can we pray for our friends? Should we pray for their healing?
1: There's two aspects to that, I would say. The first one in relation to shame and isolation You've got to remember that certain mental health diagnoses are culturally devalued. And value is something that you can't get by yourself. Value is is always a gift. It's always something somebody else gives to you. If you're living with a devalued condition where you're not getting any kind of value-giving relationships, then you will become isolated, you will become shameful, and you will become uh, withdrawn. Uh, Not simply because of the the mental health experiences you've gone through, but because of other people's responses to them. So giving people the gift of value, primarily I would say through friendship, is fundamentally important as the first part of that question. The second part in, in relation to what you should pray for is there is a difference between healing and curing. Now oftentimes when we think about the healing ministry, we think really about curing. And so in the same way as, as medicine, if you know if you have lung cancer, you identify that dark spot on your lung and you, you get medical technology to fix it. We sometimes think of the healing ministry in that way, that like you see something that's wrong and you fix it. But that's curing, that's not necessarily healing. One way to think about it is you think about the Jesus' encounter with the woman with the issue of blood. So this woman who has a hemorrhage, which means she's isolated from society, she's considered to be polluted and unclean makes her way through the crowd and touches Jesus' robe, and immediately she's cured. And then she has this conversation with Jesus, and at the end of that conversation, Jesus says, go, your faith has healed you. And you're thinking, but she's already been cured. But what seems to be happening is that the healing comes when she recognises who Jesus is. And so I think that healing is not necessarily the, the getting rid of the thing that's troubling you is holding on to that which is meaningful, that which is godly, even in the midst of the difficulties that you're, you're going through. Because many people with mental health challenges are going to live with them forever. And the last thing they need is to be made to feel like a failure because somebody has prayed for them and it hasn't in inverted commas worked. Yep. But yep. if we think about healing as connection, connection with God, connection with community, connection with self, then I think you can pray for that. You can pray that God can, even in the midst of the wild storms are going through, God can be with them, that the community can help and support that person to keep that connection with the community and with God, and that they can keep that connection of value with themselves. I think these are things that are important to pray about.
0: And, you know, when I think of praying, I think of praying for those of us who are linking arms with people who deal with mental health challenges, that God would give us the compassion, us the perseverance, us the wisdom, us the love, to have friendships, to be the kind of community that God intends for us to be. Because, you know, if I'm really honest, in my experience at Johnny and Friends, I came from a background where mental illness was reduced, I would say, to sinfulness. If I'm really honest, that was kind of my framework. But being on the phone at least once a week with someone who hears voices or deals with bipolar or some of these really difficult diagnoses. my heart began to change. And I thought, you know, one of the hardest things that they deal with is that they don't have friends. They don't have people. They don't get to have dinner. You know, I'm exaggerating, but the people that I've talked to, they're calling Johnny and friends because they don't have a good church. They don't have Christians who are going to hold hands with them and say, no matter what, I'm here because God is here. And so I, right. I just think of myself. Maybe I should speak of myself. I need to pray for a deeper compassion, a greater love. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what you're saying. It brings the healing mm-hmm. that God intended. Yes, you know, the cure could happen, but for the most part, if they live with these challenges the rest of their lives, we'll have each other as the body. And that's what that's right. brings the healing of the heart. So that's exactly
1: right. And I think also in there, Crystal, is the, the recognition that friendship is not just something that we give; it's something we receive. And actually, Good. when you end yes. in friendship with, with somebody who's who's going through different experiences, you learn a lot and you receive a lot. So it's it's like a mutual thing. And yeah. I think that once we get that mutual dynamic going, then the healing works out well for all of us in
0: Yeah, thank you for saying that. You're so right. You know, one of the other things I wanted to talk about today is suicidal thoughts and ideations. You know, again, as someone who's been answering the phone with Johnny and friends for eight years, people have called us. They feel hopeless in some of their mental health challenges. How can we as friends and the church step into their immediate crisis to help? and then provide ongoing hope and support moving forward? It's a big question.
1: It is a big question. And the first thing I would say that crucial that church congregation liaise with mental health professionals. These are a group of people who have special skills and special expertise to deal with people in very difficult situations like that. And so... Developing good relationships with mental health professions enables you to grow, and enable them to, to grow as well. But in the sense that, you know, sometimes mental health professionals are not too keen on spirituality and stuff. So it gives them an opportunity to learn what the church brings to the table in that sense. So in relation to suicide, suicide ideation, I would make sure that you have good contacts with the mental health professions. In more general terms, in relation to the issue of suicide, I think probably one place to begin to think about it is to understand why it might be happening. Let me give you an example. So one woman that I spoke to a number of years ago in a research project I was doing was looking specifically at depression. She gave a very rich and deep description of depression. She said, depression is like tumbling into a deep, dark abyss, a deep, dark pit, and you're stuck at the bottom there. And the walls of that pit are aligned with some sort of slippery stuff. So you can't climb up. You look up and sometimes you can see light. Sometimes you can see nothing. You can do absolutely nothing. You're stuck down there. The only way that you, you can really get out of that, she, from her perspective, was to take medication. She didn't want people just to sit with her because she needed to get out. She needed some way of, of getting out of that situation, which is horrible. But she said, when I'm well, it's like walking around the, the edge of that abyss, looking in, And knowing that at any moment in time, I can be back down there. Mm. And she says, it's exhausting Mm. and it's terrifying. And sometimes I just don't think it's worth it. Mm. So you can see that there's a logic there. You can understand, I'm not saying to justify it, but you can understand how somebody would feel that way Mm -hmm. if that's your experience. And even your experience of wellness, you have this kind of specter of darkness lying behind you. So listening to people's stories in that way and getting that thick and deep understanding of what's going on helps us to understand what, what people are going through, why they may be tempted to think in these ways. And when we understand, then we're in a good position to begin to offer proper support, both in terms of, of mental health professionals, but also in terms of our communities and our friendships and the relationships that we can offer over time. So that would be my my response to what is actually a really complicated Mm -hmm. issue. Mm
0: -hmm. Oh, that's really good. Well, you know, as we close our time together, I want to touch on one more thing. And that is that true distress for a Christian, I would say in my own life, and perhaps for many people around the world who live with a mental illness, is a sense of disconnection from God. I mean, Mm -hmm. that sense of, Lord, where are you? I don't experience your nearness. So as we close our conversation, what are some strategies for helping our friends with various mental health challenges reconnect with the Lord and stay oriented to His Word?
1: That's, That's a really good question. Well, the first thing I would say to people is, don't feel alone. If you read Scripture, Isaiah talks about God as a God who hides. You know that sense that God is absent. You know Psalm eighty-eight ends, "Darkness is my only companion." So the Psalmist understands what that feels like. Although "Darkness is my only companion" is a prayer. Jesus in the cross says, "My God, my God, why have you abandoned me?" So that sense of abandonment is certainly very sharp and very painful if you're going through depression. And the temptation there is to say, well, I've fallen out of my spirituality and I seem to have let everything down and I seem no longer to be, I've done something to God. But actually, when you look at scripture, you can see that experience is there. Mm. It's even there in the life of Jesus. Now, bearing it is not pleasant. Mm. And trying to find hope in the midst of that is not pleasant. But I think it's important people it's don't feel isolated from it because our tradition says, Sometimes this happens. Um, And sometimes I think the key is to take the body of Christ seriously. Sometimes when somebody is really struggling with the darkness of mental health, that sense of being abandoned, alienation, it's impossible for them to get out of there. But it's possible for other people to hold hope for them. And so we persevere together. This part of the body is broken and struggling over here. But we can hold hope for you. We can hold your faith for you until you can get to that stage uh, where you can return and be part of that and and enjoy the the Lord in the way that you normally do. So taking taking seriously the body of Christ, that we're intertwined, that what happens in one place is profoundly important for another. That sense of darkness here is something we share in that sense. So that person's not isolated because they're going through this. It's something we, as the body of Christ, understand and move through. So finding that, that embodiment of the, the lament that the Psalms feel like in the congregation. is a really good way of, of beginning to gather around somebody who's going through that really difficult period, rather than keeping more shame or more guilt on them by saying, well, pull yourself together. I don't think that's what the psalmists is saying, but I don't think that would, that, that would be a particularly helpful response to Jesus' cry from the cross and it's certainly not a helpful pastoral response for us in the difficult context of mental health.
0: It's beautiful, when God seems to hide Himself, that we are to hold hope for one another. Thank you so much, Dr. John Swinton, for joining us on the podcast today. It's been so inspiring and encouraging to speak with you. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening today. If you've been inspired, please send me a message or leave a five-star review on your favorite app. That's a great way to help other people find encouragement from these conversations. And to get our next episode automatically, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Crystal Keating, and thank you for listening to the Johnny and Friends Ministry Podcast.